A burning desire is like a desire that cuts out all possibilities. So for example, imagine somebody whose head is on fire, right? They have one goal and one goal only, to put out the fire. Nothing else will satisfy them. Nothing else matters. Their room doesn't even have time for doubt and worry. Will I be able to do this? There's no room for that. They, they only focused on one thing, finding a pond to dunk their head in so that the fire can go out. That's a burning desire. And such a person must succeed. It's impossible to fail if you're like that. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with Live Your Dream coach and professional chess player, Coach Moja. Coach Moja has lived all over the world, moving around Africa as a child and coming to the United States to attend college where he obtained a bachelor's degree in math. Coach Moja now pursues professional chess and helps others identify and live their dream through his coaching practice. Coach Moja and I have an awesome conversation about desire, persistence, belief, and how all of that works together when it comes to a person setting and accomplishing goals. I was incredibly humbled to have Coach Mudge on the show, and I'm excited to share our conversation. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Coach Mudge. Thank you so much for joining this evening. How are you doing? I'm fine. Uh, how are you doing, Walker? It's not, I'm very happy to be here. I'm good. Um, so, Coach Mudge, you uh, are actually a pretty remarkable uh, character. You 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 work as a coach currently, a live your dream coach, where you work with clients to help them identify and live their dream. Um, but beyond that, you speak eight languages. Uh, you've got a bachelor's degree in math. You're a professional chess player, and you originally uh, come from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, that's that's quite the <laughs> that's quite the story. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really uh, nice, crazy story, but it's it's because of my parents. Uh, they basically made us move a lot when we were kids. As the, as the, the, like, my parents were born in Congo. They're both Congolese citizens, but basically they figured out pretty early, right? Um, so my mom was born in a rich family. My grandpa from my mom's side was really rich, uh, but then he squandered all his wealth. So mm. mom. Mom ended up basically poor, but my dad, my dad's side, he, he came from poverty. And, uh, and so, but when they met, they were both poor and struggling. And so uh, somehow they figured out that uh, if they stayed in Congo, they'd not have many opportunities. They'd probably remain broke. So they figured out it's better to move to an English-speaking country because there are more opportunities in English-speaking countries. So they moved to, uh, ah. yeah, so... They they crossed the border from Congo to Uganda, actually on a bicycle. Shocking story. Yeah, wow. As a baby. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, usually you're supposed to cross with a plane or something, but they were so broke, they, right. they crossed on a bicycle, man. So that's how, that's how my life in Uganda started. That's that's why I speak English, because Uganda is an English-speaking country. Yes. And then mm. from there, they kept traveling. So I went to Kenya. I spent some time in Kenya. I did part of my primary school in Kenya, part of it in Uganda. And then uh, later on, when I was in high school, I got invited to some prestigious high school in South Africa. So I was there as well for the last parts of high school. And then I got uh, then I got the opportunity to study in America as well. 
So I traveled to uh, California and did my college there. That's that's where I studied math. Yeah. Gotcha. So yeah, I mean, if, you know, when I was when I was kind of um, you know doing a little bit of research ahead of our conversation here, I was thinking, I wonder if it was um, you know coming to America was a big surprise or if there was a big culture shock, but maybe not because you moved around so much, you were kind of used to adapting to new cultures and, you know, just new ideas. Is that, is that fair or was it surprising? Well, yeah. I mean, I was used to, so one thing I don't have an issue with ever is leaving. Right. So I've always had had an easy time leaving. So sometimes people, some people, sometimes people cry. Like uh, when somebody's going or they feel sad that they're leaving, I never do. Surprisingly, ever since I was a kid, mm-hmm. I just leave. You know, no big deal. Probably that's that's where it came from. But America was different. I was I'd watched a lot of American movies. I was not sad to leave America. I was actually excited because I mean, I, <laughs> I, yes, yes, I was excited to 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 to, to, to uh, no no. I mean, to leave to America to go to America. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it could work the other way too. That would be fair. <laughs> well, so, to, to be fair, right. Everywhere I left, I was always kind of happy to leave. Not because it's a bad place, but um, I'm always sure. excited about going to a new place. Right. So I, I mm. focus more on where I'm going, not so much uh, what I'm leaving behind and so on. But leaving and to so- America, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, leaving. Yeah, leaving to come to America. You were excited. <laughs> yes, I was very excited because I'd always wanted to come to America, and I'd had the dream that I would be there at some point. So very happy to go. Excited on the plane. Um, yeah, it was my first time. I think. Yeah, it was my first time in America. Or, yeah, pretty much outside of Africa except for once. But yeah. So yeah, but but America was different. So it was. Uh, yeah, America was definitely a culture shock. Everything was. Mm. I'd watched American movies. I thought I was prepared, but uh, no, I was not. <laughs> so, <laughs> are, so I'm curious: are is is the actual society more bizarre than the movies portray, or the movies more bizarre than society? No, I think the movies portray the country well. It's uh, it's just that you know when you watch a movie, there are many layers to it. There are many layers right. and intricacies to a movie. So if you don't understand American culture, you understand part of the movie, maybe the main points. But mm. as you understand the American culture, more and more things make sense. The restaurant will make sense. Certain jokes that made no sense before will make sense now. Certain phrases. Right. right? So for example, I didn't know anything about Hispanic people, right? No idea, right? Before coming, I didn't know right. there was such a thing as Hispanic or Latino people, let's say. So some of the things they might say in movies like hola or something or mamacita, something like this, made absolutely no sense to me. But when I go to <laughs> yeah, when I go to the US and I understood the culture and understood the language, I was like, oh, oh, I see, I see, I see. Now well, it, and especially California, right? Because there's a very heavy Latino Latino, you know, kind of influence there. Whereas if you'd get like I'm from Missouri in mm-hmm. the Midwest, if you'd come here you still might not have got the jokes because <laughs> uh-huh. we don't have a large population of that culture here either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I see, I see. Yes, yes. It was just different. Um, I mean, there were just yeah. too many things to juggle. And I mean, I moved to America when I was maybe 18 or 19, you know, as a kid, just uh, basically mm-hmm. moving into adulthood. So there was a lot of stuff to juggle. And then I went to a yeah. really rigorous yeah, college. So all of that. 
I just think it's so fascinating to 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 speak with with individuals like yourself because you know I have lived in <laughs> my tiny little midwestern town here in Springfield for my entire life. So, I mean, I've been around to a you know some different parts of the U.S. I've certainly not seen all of it. Uh, I've never been outside of the country. I've seen the ocean one time. So, uh, to me, do you know your story is just uh, fascinating and and. Um, almost unimaginable because i just again (laughs) let alone leaving it you know a town a whole country you know what i mean so (laughs) yes so are you still based in california now or did you did you travel relocate to somewhere else in the united states no 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 i relocated out so right now i'm I'm in congo actually so once oh okay yes once i finished school i came back to congo for a while yeah so part of it was to visit family. The other part was to, you know, after you finish college, you think of, hey, what should I do with my life now? It's a big question. Yeah. Uh, what should I do? Yeah. And so it took me a while to <clears throat> figure out that uh, basically I want to work as a live your dream coach, helping people to live their dreams and then also mm-hmm. pursue my chess career. So, I mean, ev- yeah, ever since I was a kid, I was always obsessed with chess and math. Right. So some people struggle to find out what they like, what what they should really do in life. But for me, I always knew it has to be chess and math. One of them, actually both of them at mm-hmm. different stages. So the question always used to be, should be should it, should it be chess first and math or math and chess? But I always knew it. I have to do them. Huh. So, yeah. So I was going to ask you what what drove you to pursue a, a math degree? Because that's, you know, I think for a lot of people, that's a, a pretty intimidating degree. But it sounds like you just had a passion from it since since childhood. Correct, correct. Uh, yeah, ever since I was a kid, um, I always liked math. I mean, I can still I, I still have experiences of myself solving certain problems as a kid. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's just you know everybody. This is one of the things I do with my clients all the time. Uh, okay, some of them come knowing exactly what they want to do. Most of them don't because they've been listening to a lot of the BS from society. They've lost contact with who they are. So many of them don't yeah. know what they want. And sometimes uh, what I have to do is to help them to identify their gifts. What are you, you know, what are you good at? What is your nature? In the sense of uh, what, like everybody, you know, when, when we arrive here in this body and mind, we always come with certain tendencies. Certain things are easier for us to do than other things. So I always help people to figure right. it out. Because usually your inclinations say a lot about what you might like to do. So I always came, I think, in my case, just I, I always remember being excited, excited, loving math and uh, chess because they fit with the way my mind works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sorts of problems that I love. You know, that, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I read this book called Range a couple of years ago. Um, and, and in it, he, he's talking about how. In university, you know, for the first couple of years, you're exposed to a lot of subjects that are not necessarily related directly to what your ultimate major might be. Um, And some people complain about that because they feel like it's a waste of time or, you know, why am I learning about biology if I'm going to get a math degree, for example, right? Um, But the point he makes in the book is that one of the most important qualities for a person to be successful in something is match quality. Um, Do they actually to your point, do they like what they're doing? And if someone is, is, you know, likes what they're doing and is passionate about it, a lot of other things that we talk about, like grit and tenacity and persistence come much more naturally if that match quality is there. 
but the only real way to, to, you know, to identify that is to try different things and, and see what you like. Um, does that, does that resonate with you? The idea that persistence and grit kind of come more naturally if that match quality is there? Yeah. So I would say, in fact, uh, persistence and grit come if you uh, are the product of desire. So yeah. you, you only persist towards something you really like. So sometimes, most of the time, um, things that fit your nature, your gifts, your talents are also things that you like, but not always. It's possible right. that you're good at something and you don't like it at all. So in that case, you'll not even, it would be hard for you to be persistent and greedy in that direction. So like maybe somebody yeah. would be a good talker and naturally they would make a good speaker. People always tell them, oh, you're a good speaker, you're a good speaker. But the truth is they don't want to speak at all. They want to, let's say, go to the Himalayas and meditate. That's their thing. They want to detach from society and just stay on a mountain and just, just pursue the inner world, let's say. If somebody's like that, right? Right, and you try to make them like, or let's say that somebody tried to put them into a speaking track because they like to, because they're good at speaking, then uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be hard for them to persist, and they'll they'll be miserable that way. But usually, persistence and desire go hand in hand. So that's why, uh, for example, I usually say there's no such thing as a lazy person. There's on they're only yes. with weak desires, right? Somebody tells me I'm lazy. I say, I don't think so. Because they say I quit all the time. I said, do you quit on eating or do you eat persistently? Have you been eating persistently every day for the last five years? He says, yes, I have. Have you been going to the bathroom every day for the last five years? Yes, I have. So you don't have a persistence problem. It's just you persist in certain things and not others. The question is why, right? I, I, that is so awesome to hear you say. I, I love that. So I've, I started, I don't know, maybe two and a half years ago now, working with a life coach myself and, and reading, you know, personal development books and trying to just, you know, understand how I think about things. And that was a conclusion that I came to on my own as well is, is for someone, if someone says that someone is lazy, I think the only truth of that, that the only lazy truth of that is that it's a lazy assessment, right? Mm -hmm. Because to your point, I don't think there is really such a thing as lazy because yeah, people will pursue something they desire whether that be because, so for example, people will work a job that maybe they don't really like that well, but they desire to, to have a lifestyle that they think that job can afford them, or they, you know, they don't want to, to struggle and they think that working that job will help them not struggle. So maybe it's not in pursuit of some dream or some higher thing, but there is still a desire to not suffer, right? And so then that is the motivation for why they go all the time. Yeah. Um, so it, anyway, I just agree with you completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always correlated with the degree of desire. Correct. So mm. um, yeah, the strong, the more you desire something, the more persistent you are. Just like we're talking about the example. For example, you don't need to motivate. For example, most people to have sex. The desire to have sex is very right. strong. Right. So the desire to have sex is so strong that it's, people persistently seek sex. Like if you look at men, for example. Men will persistently seek sex at all times, you know, because the desire is right. so strong, right? They're very disciplined when it comes to looking for sex, right? So, <laughs> right? so they're not like lazy people, not really. Uh, you might say, right. but look, I gave you all these math problems to solve and you didn't solve them. Uh, they say, you must be lazy. No, 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 he's not lazy. He's just 
first of all, his desire for math is not that strong. Um, the, if the more if he, if you increase his desire for math, he'll naturally become more persistent, right? And there is a way to de- increase desire. Like there's a they, they make, there's a there's a system mechanics, there's a process that can increase desire. Mm. And advertising companies know this process. That's why they can get you to <laughs> buy stuff and go into debt for stuff you don't really need, right? Because right. they understand how to build a desire. They can get you to care about. To, to really feel like you need something that is not important at all, right? So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting point that you make because I think that I think that when what we're talking about is framed in the context of personal development, it's easy to be like, eh, is that really concrete or are we sure that's how it works? But then you point to <laughs> to marketing and advertising specifically like that. And not only does it work, but there is, I mean, billions of dollars, if not trillions (laughs) annually spent on not just doing advertising, but understanding the science of it and understanding the mechanics of it. So clearly there's a a hard science to it uh, or else you wouldn't have the Super Bowl. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's not even complicated. Your decisions are never made consciously. They're always made by this. The subconscious runs your decision and actions. And not really your conscious mind at all. So what com- companies know that if they want to get you to do something, they don't need to talk to your conscious mind. They don't need to consult your logical mind. It's much smarter to bypass the logical mind and go straight to the subconscious because it makes the decisions, right? So the way, the way, the way, how do you build a design? It's very simple, right? By paying attention to something. If you pay mm-hmm. a lot of attention to something, even if you don't care about it, eventually you'll you'll feel like you can't live without it, right? So, for example, huh. yeah, let's say, look, you don't really need a particular T-shirt, right? You don't need the T-shirt. Yeah. I mean, you have enough shirts in your life already. It's not really a priority. But then maybe you always watch TV at some time of the day, maybe closer to the night, you know, when your conscious mind is more tired, you don't want to think too much, right? And so maybe you're watching some movie or something and there's a commercial that keeps coming up. And every time the commercial comes up, it's with, let's say, some pretty lady uh, wearing that shirt. Or uh, basically, there's a guy wearing the shirt and everybody's attracted to him. It just just looks so cool, right? You see that image multiple times. You're paying attention to that T-shirt, right? So the first time, you're like, who cares about this shirt? I want to watch my movie, right? But if, let's say, you did that every single night, you'll reach a point where you'll feel like you must have this shirt. And you might unconsciously find yourself at the store buying the shirt, right? So they've really built a design for the shirt that naturally your behavior became disciplined to go and get it. So if you understand this principle, you can obviously apply it consciously. That's what I do with my clients all the time and myself, right? I get them to build a tremendous desire for whatever it is that they want. And then after that, the discipline naturally follows, right? So, So yeah. I'm so sorry, please, please, no, please. Well, no, I was trying to say, like, imagine somebody who's like, let's say, obese and on the couch, right? An obese man on the couch who's scrolling to the, through the TV and they want to be an Olympian, right? So their, their dream is to be an Olympian, right? But they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm obese. How can I be an Olympian? I mean, it's too late. I'm in my 20s. People train for the Olympics as teenagers or much younger, right? But there's... There's a certain process. 
I can put him through. For example, I could get him to write down his dream of being an Olympian. I'd say, don't worry about if you're overweight, just write down your dream. Don't forget about obesity for now. Forget about working out. Just write down your dream first. Then I'll get him to read that multiple times. Let's say, let's say I get him to read that, that document 10 or 15 times a day. So I say, look, I don't want you to change anything else, right? Maybe just, I, I want, but I want you to read this to 15 times, just a, a positive statement about yourself as an Olympian, 15 times. No big deal. Or maybe I can start him easy if he's uh, really having difficulty. Okay, just seven times. So just remember, before you eat, read it. After you eat, read it. Before watching the TV, after the TV. When you get your, bo- your bag of potato chips, read it. After it's over, read it. Just simple. Do it seven times and your day is successful. Then you can go back to over- overeating and just watching TV. Don't change anything else, <laughs> right? So yeah. if they stay consistent with that behavior, just reading reading it, it's not so hard. After maybe, it depends on how, how, how deep they've gone into this uh, destructive cycle. But within a month or two months, they'll no longer feel comfortable uh, sitting on the couch and reading about that. So one of two things will happen. If nobody's following them up, they, they might quit and they might just to stay consistent. They might stop reading, right? Because mm-hmm. what they're reading is bugging them, you know? How can I say that I'm a great Olympian and here I am on the couch, uh, just eating potato chips. That, that doesn't make sense, right? But if they keep reading, there becomes an inconsistency. And eventually, naturally, they'll want to do something because their desire is going up the more they read this, right? And eventually, mm-hmm. they'll, no, I got to do something. Okay, maybe I'll go to the gym for two minutes or five minutes, fine. Right? And they could do that for a while. Maybe they could, they could work out for 20 minutes a day. Right? The more they read this, the more the desire comes. And eventually, they'll reach a point and they'll be like, but there's no way I can be an Olympian if I'm just working out 20 minutes a day, right? Over a period of time, maybe six, right. maybe six, seven months, they'll start doing more and more and more. So long as they don't uh, stop reading that dream. That's all. Mm. Yeah. So this is how I get people to naturally do w- way more than they thought possible. Yeah. So there's a couple threads that I have there. I mean, so I think I think one thing that I want to point out right away is is the length of time that you talked about there. And I know that was just a, you know, a spontaneous example. But um, I think that that's important to 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 point out, I guess, is that, you know, as you said, maybe it's two months right before there's a real change in behavior. Well, I mean, there's a change in behavior immediately by reading the document, right? But a change in behavior regarding the sitting on the couch mm. and eating the potato chip or whatever. But then beyond that, it might be several more months before there's an even bigger step, right? Yeah. I think that it's really common for people to think that I'm going to start something in, you know, within three weeks or so, and I just made that up. But whatever, in some really relatively short time, I should see a significant change in maybe not my physical health, obviously from working out for three weeks, but I should be thinking way differently, but it sounds like just from the example you gave, it's typically a lot longer process than that. Is that, is that true? So it, it always depends on the person, right? It always depends on mm. who you're dealing with. So some people are just, they've been so self-destructive for so long. This is the best process. Of course, here's the ideal. The ideal is, you sit down, you figure out what your dream is, and you start taking action today, maybe doing massive action. Right. 
if you want to become an Olympian, then you decide today. And today you, you start looking for Olympic coaches, right? And uh, you, you start heading to the gym and lifting weights four or five hours a day. That's the ideal, right? It depends on where somebody's mentality is. If somebody's mentality is right, they start that way. And then there are people mm -hmm. on different uh, phases along that journey. Right? So if somebody's been overeating and just sitting on the couch, not working out for, let's say, six, seven years, right? Working out in the gym for five hours might be too daunting for them. Even working out for right. 30 minutes might be too daunting for them. And so what we do is, uh, and they might believe they're lazy, right? So what we do is no, just help them to build the desire. They don't realize it's only a desire problem that they have, right? And so if I can get them thinking every single day a lot about something, they will not sit on the couch for long. They'll have to do start doing something, right? But it's it's, it's a process, right. of course. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, and, and so another word that you used um, earlier is is discipline. Yeah. And that was a word that used to intimidate me a bit because it it because discipline is like the way it's positioned often is that it's there's like a a struggle to it. Right. Like it's it's like even in the face of of discomfort or in the face of not, you know, a lack of desire, I'm still going to, to do this thing. But what I found whenever I, um, I I read a couple of books, Discipline Equals Freedom and then The Power of Habit after that. And and what they didn't explicitly say, but I found to be true is that the discipline can be hard, but the discipline actually only lasts for a little bit. And, and when I say a little bit, I mean, you know, a, to your point, it's probably subjective and, and depends on the individual, but relatively quickly, that discipline to like read the document in, in the example you've given daily, at first it might be a struggle, but relatively soon it turns into a habit. And once it's a habit or a routine, there's there's not that same friction in engaging in that. Is that does that resonate? Is that accurate? Yeah. So it always depends on uh, it always depends on basically what what the goal is, you know, how far you're willing to go. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how far you want to go. So, for example, if you want to be above average, this is true. If you want to be look, the society is so mediocre. This is not just in America, just worldwide. The society is so mediocre that uh, if you, let's say, work for consistently on something for 90 minutes a day or an hour a day practicing properly, Within a short period of time, you'll become above average. Because usually the society is not so good at, uh, at things. So like, for example, you know, if you, if, if you worked, uh, let's say, 90 minutes a day doing the correct stuff, let's say, like in Spanish, within about six to seven months, you'll become fluent in Spanish. Right? So I've actually mm -hmm. done that myself and I've, shown, I, I've actually shown people how to do that. Right? So actually I have a client who we, we did that. We started last year. And now we can speak Spanish fluently, listen to the news, understand what they're saying, have a one-hour conversations. And he wasn't working that hard, right? Just an hour, 90 minutes. So he's already exceptional, right? Because he's achieving in six months what most people take a lifetime and they're still never able to do, to, let's say, like master the Spanish language. Right? Even just be able to have yeah. a, a conversation about life in Spanish, speak for an hour just in Spanish. For most people, that looks, that's extraordinary. Non-Spanish speakers. Yeah. So if, if, if you set your target as being like above average or you know, being quite good, then of course you don't need to work hard. You don't need too much discipline, just a bit, right? But 
if you set your if you if you're dreaming really big, if you want to be the best of the best, right? Then it's a different story altogether, right? So you cannot become, say, a Navy SEAL or a world champion at something. Like to to become that good, like let's say, trying to become Jeff Bezos, right? The richest person on the planet. If you want to go to the become the best of the best, uh, then of course it's uh, it, 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 it's it's hard, right? It's hard and it takes tremendous discipline, a lot of hard work, right? Everything else is sacrificed for the dream, right? And uh, this cannot be easy. So, like uh, for example, I mean. I mean, some guys have to work out till they puke, right? If you want to be a decent basketball player, you don't need to work that hard. If you want to be the best of the best, right? You're going to go to the gym and you're going to work out, you know, till... Uh, I mean, I've heard of crazy workouts, right? Where people in an hour, they're like... They, they, they've sweated through the T-shirt and they're puking in a trash can. So you never right. get used to that. That can never become fun or, you know, it can never become like a habit you're used to. Nobody's body likes this kind of thing. Um, so basically it does take effort right eventually because you if, if you're trying to become the best of the best or do something really dramatic um, then you're going to face really heavy challenges right every, and every day you're going to be doing very uncomfortable stuff that's really painful and the mind is telling you forget this let's go like let's go drink a beer have some sex uh, stuff like this right and so you have to keep like pushing pushing yourself to continue but question is, what pushes you to, what causes somebody to push through all the pain? If you're trying to become the best of the best, the workouts can't be fun. Right? In fact, usually, like, I mean, if you're working, let's say, if, let's say, like, if you're going to the gym for an hour a day, that can be fun. But imagine if you're, you're a professional athlete, and maybe you're in the gym six or seven hours a day doing really heavy work, right? It's hard to say that is fun. You might love the sport, but that, that's not going to be fun on a daily basis. In fact, it's going to suck right. every day, right? But what makes you push through things that suck every day? What does that is uh, a strong desire for, for the goal. It doesn't make everything fun right. or effortless, not necessarily. It depends on how far you want to, what you want to accomplish. So uh, another word that I um, have talked to and thought a lot about in, in this context is, is belief. Is belief synonymous with desire or is that something separate in your thinking well uh i'd say that belief is uh, a very strong form of desire right so mm. one of the people that impacted me a lot is a guy called napoleon hill in his book think and grow rich which i yeah. which i studied religiously like the bible line by line word by word so mm. basically he talks about having a burning desire a burning desire is like a desire that cuts out all possibilities. So, for example, imagine somebody whose head is on fire, right? They have one goal and one goal only, to put out the fire. Nothing else will satisfy right. them. Nothing else matters. Their room doesn't even have time for doubt and worry. Will I be able to do this? There's no room for that. They, they only focus on one thing, finding a pond to dunk their head in so that the fire can go out. That's a burning desire. Right. And such a person must succeed. It's impossible to fail if you're like that. Now, think about faith. Mm. Faith means to cut out all options except for what you want. Right? So, for example, if you say mm. you believe in God, it means that you've cut out every possibility but the existence of God. You don't even tolerate anything else. Right? You see, that's very similar to having a burning desire. 
where you've cut out everything but your goal. Right. So this is why I say that. Mm. Right. Right. So faith, that, faith, faith. Literally, you can build faith by building your desire in something. The more you want something, the more you start to believe you can get it because you have to. Right. Like, I mean, like let, let's say you start out. Right. Let's say you start out saying, look. Uh, you start out with something like you want to be a billionaire, right? So, of course, the first time you say that, if you're like a middle-class person or broke, that's a completely foolish, unrealistic goal. You definitely mm-hmm. don't believe you can do it. Become a billionaire. Who are you, you know? You tell it to your family, they laugh right. Right quickly. You tell it to become realistic, <laughs> right? But yeah. if you build a desire for that goal, let's say you spend your entire day thinking about yourself as a billionaire. You keep imagining what kind of car you'll drive, the hot women that will, you'll never have access to, maybe the kind of orgies you'll be involved in, whatever. You just keep thinking about it all the time, all the time, all the time. If you do that, by necessity, you'll start to believe, hey, maybe it's possible. But it takes consistency. And not consistency of like one week. No, not that. That's where people screw up. <laughs> Most people get excited about this thing for like one day or two days, you know? Maybe I watched a movie, a yeah. documentary about some billionaire, Jeff Bezos. And then I saw him with like some really hot chicks next to his Lamborghini. I'm like, great, I need this. So maybe I think about <laughs> it today, right? And then tomorrow, you know, tomorrow I'm like kind of back to my normal life. Uh, I, I'm back to reality, you know, to my broke life, realizing I, I need to pay the bills and so on. Most people will do that. But... Right. But let's say you are to really continue, stay in that state, keep thinking about it that intensely every day, maybe do that for two to three months. Right. Uh, inevitably, you'll start to believe you can do it. You must. Mm. If you want something so bad, you got to believe you can do it. Just like if you want a girl right. so badly, man, like, you start to think of ways to get her because you start to believe you can get her. I'm curious then what do you think the the biggest obstacle is that people face that that stops them from from you know pursuing their dream is it is it confusion about how to build desire is it fear of you know change discomfort pain whatever that might be like what is what is do you think the biggest obstacle the 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 biggest obstacle for most people is their desires their goals are not clear that's a big problem. Mm. That's part of the reason why they are unmotivated. They don't realize why they're unmotivated, but it's because they don't have clear objectives. Right? Mm. Like if you go, if you just woke up people in the morning and said, when somebody wakes up, you're like, hey, why did you wake up this morning? Ask this to 100 random people, right? 98 of them will have no idea. Right? You, you, right. You'll only have maybe two people who say, I woke up today to become world heavyweight champion in boxing. Very rare mm-hmm. you'll find somebody like that. Why did you get up today? I got up today to make sure that my kids have a great education. Right? It's rare to find somebody 
who has a clear reason for waking up, right? And that's very important. That creates motivation. So most people, if you ask them what they want, they give you vague things. I want to make the world a better place, which is completely useless. Mm. Even something as I want to be an Olympian is totally useless. There's so many Olympic sports. Mm. What does that mean? Winter, summer. Are you talking about sprinting or are you talking about swimming? Are you talking about short, short put? You say, okay, I want swimming. Okay, great. Brace stroke or freestyle. Right? So you've got you to go really <laughs> specific. Most people are not that specific. So obviously they're not motivated. Right. You always get motivated or obsessed about something specific, right? So the first task right. I do with most people is get them to figure out what they really want and detail it out to me. Most people don't have, it's rare to find somebody who has like a document somewhere where they have written down their dream or their future in tremendous detail. I mean, maybe the kind of relationships they want to have, the kind of sex they want to have, the kind of house they want to live in, everything in detail down to how many floors, um, uh, how many cars, what do they look like? What does it feel like? What kind of friends do I have? Right. So I have such a document about my future. It's like 15 pages long. Oh, wow. if, if somebody works with me, they that's they they, all, they always have to have such a document about their own future. But it's rare. It's rare to find people like that. And if you look at the top of society, you'll find that people who are the top of society, the top of business, top of politics, they do have such a detailed image of their future. That's why we call them visionaries. So right. just doing that one thing, getting a clear image of what you want, is will already um, make you more motivated, more serious. So that's the first obstacle, but of course there are others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then, and then I guess is how often is that subject to change? Like how often is that even in for yourself, that 15 page document, is that modified ever or it, it was created and, and then you've just been stuck to it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very minor modifications, very minor. If the process is done properly. Right. So basically mm -hmm. When, when you want something and then you change it, like if let's say you write down your dream or your goal and then you change it tomorrow and so on, what it basically means is that what you've written down is not something that you truly want. There are certain mm. things that connect to the core of your being. The way I like to put it is um, in chess, right? So I'm a professional chess player, right? So in chess, we have strong play, we have weak players and we have like grandmasters. The grandmasters are the strong players. Right? Weak players make random moves all the time. Grandmasters never make right. random moves. Right? If you ask a grandmaster, hey, why did you move the knight to H8? It looks completely crazy, but he always has a reason why he did it. Never makes random moves. right? So we as human beings are the product. I like to think of the creator, or whatever force that created this world and the people in it. I like to call that force the great grandmaster. It's like it must be a great, great, great super grandmaster, right? To create such a complicated <laughs> thing the human body, the right. oceans, and the universe. So, the, obviously, look, the great grandmaster is not going to make random moves. So, if, if he puts Walker on this planet, it's not random. Of course not. He's too smart to make random moves. There must be a specific mm. reason why he put you here at this moment. Right in this era, it's not right with this skin color. Everything, you 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 have right. a purpose. You have something to do. Right. Another thing that a grandmaster will never do is make a redundant move. That is, kind of like if if you play a beautiful game of chess, you can't have, let's say, two pieces doing the same function. That's inefficient. Mm. Right. 
So every piece has its specific function, its own role, and uh, none of them is duplicating the other's work. Right? If, you, if I have a knight, the knight mm. is there to do something specific, and the bishop is doing something that the knight cannot do. Then we have harmony, right? So obviously the great right. grandmaster, the force that created everything, uh, is, is going to be much smarter. It's not going to have redundant people, right? So it means what it means is that, look, there's something you were supposed to do in this era. That's why the grandmaster made you as a move on this planet. He put you here, and there's something you're supposed to do that is irreplaceable. Nobody else can do it, just you. Your special mm. background, your special skill set are designed for you to do something specific. right? So if you spend time alone, most people don't do that. If you spend time alone and really ask, what should I do? What do I really want? And you go really deep, you will find an answer there. An answer that's connected kind of with the, aligned with the grandmaster's uh, vision or what what kind of, what he put you here for, let's say. And you will find there are certain answers that never change. For example, in my case, ever since I was a kid, it was always chess and math. 15 years later, it's still chess and, chess and math. Right. So when you have right. something like that, you know, this is something that is at the core of your being. It's, it has, it's connected with the essence of who you are, what makes you tick. And so usually if you write those things down, they don't change. And everybody has something like that. Right. But you have to go really, that's what I, I, that's my work with people. That's what I do with them. We go really deep and find that, something like that. Everybody has it, uh, but most people right. have lost contact with it. So do you, do you, um, are you a promoter of, of things like meditation or journaling or those practices that help with what you're kind of talking about there? Or is, are those not really related in your view? Well, those things would help, of course, uh, meditation, journaling, those would help. Yes. So there are many ways to do it, but the, the essential thing mm-hmm. is to stay alone with your own thoughts. Journaling can really help. Mm-hmm. If let's say you started, but you, you don't even need to do that, but it's okay as well. It's just about staying alone, staying alone. Um, away from uh, your wife, kids, uh, the parents, uh, the TV, anybody who's going to influence you, tell you what you should do. Because society is always trying to tell you what your boss will tell you, what you should do with your life and so on. It's always, of course, about improving his company, right? So, uh, but you want to spend time alone by yourself and ask, what should I do? You know, like great grandmaster, the force, laws of nature, whatever. Why, why am I here exactly? Just uh, what should I do? If you spend enough time alone asking that question, you will find an answer. And that answer will be will resonate with your core to the point where it will be one of those things that don't change. And it will be mm-hmm. one of those things that if you don't do them, you regret them on your deathbed. Right? Mm. Yeah. It's like, it will be like one of those core things when you're dying, you're like, oh, I should have done that. I should have. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking with a guy one time um, who is an author now. Uh, he's published, I think, 17 books in just a, a few years. So very, very uh, productive as a writer. And But he prior to that, he had, he had built, a, I think, a CPA firm and then sold that and, and to, to pursue the writing because that's what his real passion was. And I asked him... I asked him how fear had played into that. And he explained that when he was younger, he was afraid to pursue the writing because he had a family and he wanted to provide for them and he wanted to, you know, have a stable life. And so he was afraid to take the risk that writing would prove, you know, be, but then when he got a little bit older, then it was, 
a fear of not accomplishing that, that you know, to the regret point that you just made is, is what made me think right. of that. Yeah. It was a fear of not pursuing his dream that actually pushed him to <laughs> sell the business and then, you know, pursue writing full time and take on that risk, you know, because of that fear of regret. And I just thought that was so interesting to see fear in one place, hold him back from something and in another place later in life, motivate him to do that same thing that it previously held him back from. Hmm. Does that make sense at all? Yes, yes, yes. So there is a relationship with, it, with between fear and desire. So usually whenever, mm. wherever one is, the opposite is not there. So the more your fear, mm. the less your desire. The more your desire, the less the fear. It's like, it's like they play on opposite teams. So, yeah. yeah, for example, just let's look at the simple example, going after a girl, right? Uh, if you really want a girl and you want to get her... Uh, don't really spend much time thinking about how things might go wrong right you, you, right you don't spend because fear is what is fear fear is looking into the future and imagining a negative outcome like negative consequence that's what fear is right uh if, right. let's say i see a lion and get afraid it's because i've imagined my future of being eaten by this thing this is why i'm afraid right i, I saw a negative image in the future but if i saw a positive image i'd not be afraid it'd be completely fine for example, if I work with lions every day, or this particular lion is my buddy, right? I raised it since it was a cub. I look at it, I look into my future, and I just see like fun times, us chilling together. No fear, right? So, right, right. right. So this is the same thing with... Uh, so the, the, this, so I was talking about relationship between fear and desire, correct? So let's say you wanted a girl really badly. You want this girl, you know, she's so hot, etc. Uh, the more you want her, the less you're going to imagine. And you're, you're going to be imagining a positive future. Think about it. Maybe you guys are together, right. you know. Maybe you're now in bed or at a party somewhere, I don't know, have on a date or something like this. So you see, if you're imagining a positive image of the future, there's no room for fear. right? So you see, fear is gone. And on the other hand, uh, if let's say you really want this girl, then you go talk to your buddies about it. And they tell you... Uh, Dude, what if she says no to you? Like the last guy, uh, the last guy who went after her, she poured water on him and embarrassed him in public. Right? She poured wine right. on the shirt. You know, women love to do this crazy shit now. Poured wine because <laughs> they can get away with it. But poured wine on your shirt and then you know uh, yelled at you in public. Everybody laughed at that guy. Do you want to be like him? Now, if, if you start imagining and thinking of yourself in the same experience your desire goes down automatically because now you can mm. imagine the negative future, right? A, a, a future you right. don't like. Yes, yes. So the two things really work opposite. So people can be motivated by fear to do something like the guy who uh, says, well, what if I don't do this? <clears throat> the reason it motivated him was because he didn't dwell too much on that fear. But if he spent a lot of time thinking about it, then it would right. be the opposite. So, for example, paradoxically, right. poor people are afraid of poverty. It's strange. You think right. if you're afraid of poverty, then you should be rich, right? No. If you're, if you're yeah. afraid of poverty for a long time, all you think about is poverty. All you think about is, oh, geez, what if I don't pay the bill today? What if, in America, this is not an issue. In other countries, what if I don't have this kid's school fees to send them to school, you know? Uh, I mean, what if we get yeah. kicked out on the street? What if the landlord gets rid of me, you know? What if I lose this one job that's supporting me? What if my wife finds out that I'm broke and leaves me? Blah, blah, blah. 
So this is what a poor person spends time thinking about. Because if you think about this kinds of stuff, you're basically attracting all of it. It will come to you. Right. Whatever you think about a lot comes to you. It's this uh, inviolable law of nature of the mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the very first, I mean, it's the very first point uh, I think that you made is just the, 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 the key to building desire and, and maybe even, I mean, subconsciously, right. It's not because the poor person doesn't consciously think I desire poverty no. consciously. They think just the opposite. Yes. But by constant exposure, it, it manifests that again, subconscious desire for that again, not that they consciously want it, but that's the outcome. Yeah. I'm glad you made the connection. Yes, indeed. So we said before, how do you build desire by paying attention to something? If you get mm -hmm. something that you don't want and you continue to pay attention to it, eventually you'll desire it more and more. You might not realize it. How can I desire poverty of all things? It's so painful. It's so bad. The reason you desire poverty is because it's familiar to you. Right. So this this is important. Like if if all I know is poverty, poverty, I desire poverty because it's comfortable. I know what it's like to be poor. I mean, I look on the TV and see rich people, but I have no idea what it's like to be rich. Riches is right. unknown. Poverty is known to me. So I might hate it, but it's the devil I know. So I'm going to stay here. It's comfortable. I like it. The poor person will never agree that they love poverty, but they do. And that's why they think about it all the time. The subconscious speaks a different language. The subconscious doesn't care about logic. All it cares about is uh, basically how it determines, how you communicate to it is through attention. Right? Mm -hmm. The subconscious mind, if you pay attention to something, it means you want it. Right? Is, uh, which kind of right. makes sense. Like, imagine somebody, let's say you go to a restaurant, right? Maybe some guy is on a, like, on a vegetarian diet. Right. And they tell you, I don't like meat. Right. But the entire time you're talking, the guy is looking at your piece of meat. Right. So are you going <laughs> right. to believe what they say, or what they're doing? You're like, no, they, they keep looking at meat. They must like it. Right. That's kind of it's more intelligent to say that. Right. Somebody tells you, right. I love you very much, but they're frowning. They have a closed posture. You're not going to believe what they say. You're going to believe their actions. Right. So the, the actions, you don't really, you don't pay too much attention to the words, not so much. This is the same thing with the, the yeah. subconscious. It doesn't care about your words. It cares about what you pay attention to. So if you're always thinking about poverty, then it says you want poverty. So it brings it to you. I mean, this is, a, I think, maybe a somewhat silly example, but it, it's something that I've considered in my own experience here lately. So about a year ago, I adopted a dog mm -hmm. um, and I'm a, always been a very big fan of dogs, but I never owned a dog as an adult. So I, I adopted a dog about a year ago and on a daily basis, multiple times a day, I, I, I see the dog. I feel an affection for him. I tell him how great he is and, and, but he doesn't understand language, of course. <laughs> so really what I'm doing and, and over time, I've surprised myself with how much affection I have for the dog. But then I got to thinking about it and I was like, I wonder if that's just because I'm constantly telling myself, even though I think I'm telling him, like, really, I'm telling myself all the time how meaningful he is, how important he is and all, you know what I mean? And, and yes. then that is what's manifested it more so than some like natural connection that may have existed independently. Yeah. Does that make sense at all? Or Correct. 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 
uh, yeah, you've been yeah. communicating to your subconscious that you love this dog. So, yeah. And you've been communicating not just with words, but with emotion. Emotion is key. Right. Emotion and also your actions. Right. So the subconscious pays a lot of attention to your actions. So, like, that's why, you see, if you're really pissed off at somebody, um, let's say you're really angry at somebody, and then you go and you do stuff like ask them about how their day is and about how their kids are, it kind of diffuses your anger. It goes down. In fact, it can switch your emotions very quickly if you do that. Right. Oh, how is your son doing? Uh, I heard he had a test. Did it go well and so on? This is after maybe somebody really pissed you off. Right. If you do this, it switches right. your emotions automatically, right? Because basically, you know, it takes a lot of emotion to talk about stuff like that. And then maybe they're going to be laughing or, and you're going to be kind of excited about it, right? So there you're communicating the subconscious, right? So because the subconscious gets confused. How can I hate this person? And yet I'm asking about their well-being. It doesn't make sense. Right? So automatically right. it has to change. But if you say to yourself, I love this person uh, or like uh, I've forgiven them, but your actions are the exact opposite, and the subconscious will believe your actions, of course, or your thoughts. If you spend most of your time mm-hmm. thinking about what the bad things they did to you, right? Uh, obviously, the subconscious is not going to believe you when you say, I love him very much. No, not really. Right. BS. Right. Words. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I'm curious, um, you know, I don't I don't actually know the, the exact time frame, but I feel like it's been in the last decade and, and maybe even less than that, but that, you know, coaching and, and the type of work that you're doing has become really prevalent. I mean, of course, personal development books, I mean, you know, Zig Ziglar famous, you know, from the seventies or whatever. So it's, it's not that it's a new idea, um, but it seems like it's become very popular, at least in the U S again, I'll say within the last 10 years, loosely, is that same phenomenon true around the world? Uh, how, I, I guess I'm curious how, how common this kind of work is in in uh, Uganda, for example, or the, the Democratic Republic of Congo? It's it's. I think it's not yet here as much. It's more. I think it's probably mm. a big development in the. It's probably a huge thing in the developed world. So, but it's obviously spreading everywhere, uh, and the reason for that yeah. is it's so effective. And here's why: like, let's say a coach is completely uh, terrible. Like they don't know anything at all. They are completely unskilled coach. Just by hiring one, you can they, you could still achieve your goal. Just the whole yeah. idea of having somebody by your side who cares about you. Like, let's say somebody has no skills as a coach. All they do is they care about you and believe in you, right? And then they talk to you, let's say, on a weekly basis about your dream and whether you're making progress towards your goal. For some people, that's enough to get them to the goal. That's it. Right. Yeah. Actually, there are many coaches who are unskilled, obviously. In any field, it's always like that. Most people don't know what sure. they're doing. Man, there are many unskilled coaches, and yet their clients still get results. Right. It's, 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 yeah. um, it's an important principle. It's uh, in Napoleon Hill's system of success, it's called the mastermind principle. Maybe you can think of it as team. Mm. According to Napoleon, which makes sense, um, whenever two minds come together uh, towards, they come together towards a common objective in harmony. A new, like, it's not two minds anymore. It's, a, it's one mind. The mastermind is formed. Mm. So basically, according to him, it's like you combine your spiritual forces, right? And so, and your desire for something just goes up dramatically. So this is, for example, 
when I work with clients, I hold them accountable on a daily basis. Right. So I'll be like, okay, today you you tell me what you're supposed to do, and then every day you gotta uh, you're going to send me a message. Did you do it or not? And if you didn't do it, of course I'm going to want to know why and so on. Right. So in this strange way, I'll get somebody who's been quitting all the time and not disciplined, and the person has stayed consistent for like six months. Maybe in six months they've missed three or four days. Right? How is that possible? How is it possible when somebody who's been quitting all the time suddenly they have a coach who's like holding them accountable and they're doing much better? Right? They're surprising themselves mm. right? by learning a language in six months. Let's say, how does that happen? And that's the that's kind of the power of uh, coaching. It's not so much coaching; it's more like just having somebody who believes with you, right, for whatever you want, right? So imagine, like, let's imagine, like, you're super broke and you want to become a multi multi-millionaire. You're super broke. If you're broke or middle class, your friends are also going to be broke and middle class usually. All the people who interact with them right. are going to be that way. So let's say you set the goal of yourself to become a multi-millionaire. None of your environment is going to be supportive. In fact. If, uh, if your friends or family realize that you're making steps in that direction, then they might actually actively try to stop you because they don't want you to change. They want you to stay with them. They subconsciously know if you really keep reading these books about success and you start creating a plan to be a millionaire and you start acting on it, very soon you'll move to a new neighborhood, right? And very soon you'll not be able to communicate with them well because you'll be on a different kind of different uh, level, frequency, right? Just right different worlds right imagine you're in that poor 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 environment like that let's say everyone surrounding you is not supportive but then and now god bless the internet maybe you have a friend somebody who's a coach in another part of the world maybe he's a maybe he's a millionaire he doesn't even have to be a millionaire but he believes in you and his entire job every single day is to touch base with you about your dream are you making progress towards becoming a millionaire you said that you are going to, uh, you are going to go and register your business. Did you do it? You said you are going to do market research. Did you do the market research? You are supposed to attend X seminar. Did you go? Imagine if you have somebody doing that for you, right? Suddenly, right. your your poor environment doesn't matter because <clears throat> you have a new environment with this one guy who you're in sync with, and a good good coach will be in sync with you. It's rare to find a coach who hates you, uh, who doesn't want you to succeed. Usually, they do want you to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I've found that I think is a, a tremendous value that I didn't understand until I started working with a coach is that in a relationship with a friend or a family member or, or whatever, there's in any dialogue, there's a back and forth. If my friend asks, if I ask my friend, how is your day? They're probably going to ask me, how is my day? Right? Like there's a reciprocation in the dialogue, which is normal and and, and I think healthy and appropriate. But when it comes to a coach, and this is also true of, of therapists to some ex extent as well, but but either way with coaching, one of the benefits that I, again, didn't anticipate was that as the client, I, I don't, I don't have, there is no reciprocation, right? Like we're only focused on what I'm trying to, to, to achieve, what I, what I'm trying to, to think about. And there's a real, and it might sound selfish, but again, I'm not advocating that friends should, should interact this way, <laughs> but yes. when you have the coach client relationship, you really get to go down, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, the rabbit hole of, of your thoughts, because the other person doesn't, the coach doesn't ever expect you to, 
talk to them about their desires because that's not the nature of the relationship. Yes, yes, um, correct. correct. And I think that people will also think, well, why would I pay someone to do that when I could just have a friend or someone hold me accountable? But it comes back to incentives, and which is to some extent desire. When the coach is paid to do it, well, they're incentivized to be in that space because that's that's the job that they that they're doing right now. That's the work that they're doing to provide for themselves. When it's your friend, they might not care next week, and not because they don't care about you, but again, your relationship is a lot more reciprocal. They're not as invested in you in the way that a coach is, based on the fact that the relationship is a client coach relationship. Um, is that, is that, if you found that those things to be true in your own, in your own work? Correct. Correct. That is true. That, that, that is very true. Um, and yeah. uh, the other thing also, what helps a lot, we're talking about desire. We said that when you're talking about desire, you want to convince your subconscious mind that this is important. I want this and nothing else. That's the ideal. You want to get to a point of obsession. It's this or nothing. That's all, all, like all hyper successful people are obsessed, every single one. Like, mm. I mean, like the president of a country, he's obsessed with his work. He's always working. He sleeps four or five hours. He must be that way. You cannot be a president if you're not obsessed with your work. Right? It, that work is only for obsessive type people. Right? All the, right. Just any kind of successful people are obsessed. Right. And so one of the things that uh, build to be, an obsession is just a very strong desire. So if you keep increasing your desire, one day you become obsessed. And then, of course, once you become obsessed, your life changes. You become disciplined. Everything starts to change. You can put up with anything because you're obsessed. So yeah, I was just connecting that to what you were saying before, though. Uh, yeah. With regards to the coaching experience, right? Um, yeah. Yes. So if you pay money to a coach, for example, what you're doing is, you're, again, you're telling your subconscious it's important. This is one way to tell your subconscious that something is important by paying for it. We only pay for important things. If you pay mm -hmm. for something, you're saying this is valuable. Automatically, it increases your desire. That's right. why it's shocking, right? Like in the coaching world, the more a client pays, the better the results they get, which is kind of strange. But the same client, if they paid you, say, a thousand a month, they'll, their work and their, let's say their results will be different than if they paid 5,000 or 10,000. If, right. if, if the same guy paid you ten thousand a month, they'll be super serious because they know that <laughs> yeah, very serious. Right. They will right. Like, like 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 sometimes, right? I say stuff all the time, right? And people will get it for free and then not do anything about it. But if, when they're right. paying me a lot of money, every word is gold, right? Right. So with that kind of seriousness, they're bound to they're bound to succeed. Every recommendation is taken seriously because they're paying. Uh, so much for it. That's another part of it. And another part is just like I was saying before, when you're in such close contact with somebody like this, where you, you care about each other and you want him to succeed, you draw upon each other's spiritual energy. What mm -hmm. I mean by that is like, so for example, my clients is kind of like whatever they're doing, they feel like I'm there with them. Right. So they draw upon my energy. They're kind of like, I mean, like, what what would what would uh, what would Moja do? It say in such a situation, would Moja quit now or continue going? No, he'll, he'll tell me to keep going. So I, I gotta keep going. And right. of course, other things they draw upon my intelligence and experience, obviously, right? So sure, yes, it's almost like my mind belongs to them, which is powerful. It's nice to have an extra mind at your disposal. 
Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So this is a complete non sequitur. It, it, it is not directly related to what we've been talking about. But I'm really curious, as someone who's played chess for a long time, and, and now you know you pursue it professionally. Did you your your climb through the the ranks of of of, of competitive chess? Was it something that was just a product of the consistency, and it was just a slow progression? And I don't even mean to use the word slow, but just a steady, consistent progression. Or was there, are there like aha moments, kind of breakthrough moments where you now understand it differently or see it differently? Right. So it all if depends. If that makes any sense. Yes. So the experience has been different depending on how I've been working. So when I started out like seriously pursuing a professional career, um, of course, I didn't start out by working extremely hard. I started out small, not so much just a bit. First thing I did was hire a coach, then added a second one, right? Just, and then we worked a little bit and then I I kept increasing, right? Of course, at a certain point in line with the principles, I couldn't maintain my dream and work a little bit. Suddenly I worked, I started working all the time, right? Now I work the entire day, right? So minimum, I spend maybe 12, I mean, I work like 80 to 100 hour weeks, right? So Wow. Maybe yes, yes, yes. So a huge, a huge amount of it is on chess. At least nine hours a day on chess, Monday to Sunday, right? Wow. So, yeah. So this is the power of obsession. Weekends disappear. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, yes. So the aha moments have been different, right? When I when I was working hard and when I wasn't. So when I was working just a little bit, here's the, the normal progression, which makes sense. When you work like a normal person, which means maybe one or two hours a day, three hours, one to two, maybe one to three hours a day. Let's put it that way. It's like kind of normal. If you work like that, what you're going to do is you're going to have plateaus, periods where there's no improvement, and then suddenly a huge jump in understanding. Mm. Oh, wow, I get this. And then you'll you'll stay steady maybe for two weeks or something, and then you'll have a huge jump. That's provided you're, maybe you're, you're you're not working that hard, but at least you're practicing correctly, right? You're practicing right. correctly. Like you're doing the, you, you, you must be doing the right stuff in order to learn. You're actually learning. But sometimes you feel like you're not going in when then you reach ahas and you jump and your skill level depicts that. But when you're working super hard, plateaus, basically your plateaus don't take weeks. Plateaus take hours. Mm. Like if you spend nine hours a day, 10 hours a day doing something and you're practicing properly, like usually the, the plateau would be like the first four hours would be maybe a plateau. So every day you'll be having various aha moments. You, you go to bed today, you wake up tomorrow, you're dramatically more skilled than you are yesterday. It's strange. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, that's what I experienced with chess, right? So, I mean, I push myself so hard that every single day I'm just making dramatic leaps. Every day is like, aha, wow, I'm at a new level. Every, almost every day, that, that feeling. But that's if you work like crazy, then, then it happens that way. It, it, it really depends. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Well, Coach Moja, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure talking with you this evening. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you know, link up with you on social media, connect with you anywhere, do you, do you have accounts you'd like to promote? Or is there anywhere that, that people should be directed to, to get in contact with you? Yeah, so I do have a, um, I, I do have a podcast um, that I recently started, so I can give them access to that. 
just a moment. Yeah. Could, could I type in the link maybe somewhere? I don't know. I'll put it in the chat. Um, yeah, you can you can email me the link um, okay. after the show, and, and then I can I can I'll make sure and put it in the show notes. Um, All right. So so yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I do I do I, I do have a podcast. So you can contact me there, and I talk about. It's, my podcast is specifically designed for men uh, and helping men to identify and live their dreams. Uh, yeah, because unfortunately the society has forgotten about men. It's strange, but fact. Uh, okay. So and uh, but I do have a gift to the, the your particular audience for today. Um, so for the listeners, uh, I mean I'm a busy guy, but I do have a bit of time on my schedule. I'm making seven spots available for a free live your dream uh, coaching session. Right. So oh wow. yes, yes, yeah, like a free thirty minute live your dream coaching session. So where uh, I'll work with you one on one, and for those for for that half hour, we'll get a crystal clear vision of what your dream is. We'll figure out the hidden challenges that are stopping you from achieving the dream. By the way, they might not be what you think. And uh, you you leave the, uh, this, this session uh, renewed, re-energized, inspired to finally live your dream. So this is awesome. only available for the first seven people to reach out to me because I, I have a lot of stuff to do, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we, well, they, they only they have to find a window on either side of the nine hours of chess. So yeah, so, so they have to send me an email. Uh, Moja, my, so my just send me an email at uh, mojaiso at gmail dot com. Um, okay. Yeah, just my email. Okay, yeah, I've got in the description. Yeah, yeah, I was just I've got that as well. So I'll make sure and, and throw that in the description for people to click on directly. Correct. Correct. Awesome. Well, again, Coach Moja, it has been a, a super honor for me to talk to you. It's very humbling to have you come and, and share your insights. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm glad I was able to help. Thanks for having me on. Bang comes as the prize.
Well, that's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Coach Mojo for stopping by and sharing his walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. Both of those are available on any podcast app. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. <laughs>